from leadership on the field to leadership in the emergency room, Philadelphia Lady Hawks captain and registered nurse Erica Sackey, plus the emergence of the Doc Show with the captain of the Baltimore Dockers, Nick Siska. All of that is coming up. This is Episode 5 of the Marks and Stripes USAFL Podcast. G'day everyone, my name is Brian Barish. It's great to have your company wherever you're joining us. A reminder that this podcast can be accessed on iTunes, Google Podcast, and the Wooshka app. Go back and listen to the previous episodes. They're pretty awesome in my humble opinion, and it will at least get you through a half day of working at home or cleaning. It's an all East Coast episode today as we interview Erica Saki from Philadelphia and Nick Siska from just down I-95 in Baltimore. But before we do that, we have some housekeeping items, and they both involve sponsors of ours. Uh, The first thing is that uh, by the time you're listening to this, hopefully, uh, you will see on our social media and on our website a great deal from Cooper's Beer uh, celebrating the 20th anniversary of the partnership between uh, them and us. Of course, a lot of people know the story that Cooper's uh, came in and uh, helped us out uh, as a sponsor for the 2000 USAFL Nationals, and they've been uh, our official partner and official beer sponsor ever since. There is a way for you to make Coopers at home, and if you go on to, as I said, if you go on to our social media, USA, uh, facebook.com slash USAFL, and Twitter and Instagram at USAFL1997, as well as on our website, usafl.com. We have more information uh, on this great deal. Uh, everybody loves Coopers, and so you have an opportunity to make it at home uh, because, well, why not? <laughs> Who wouldn't want to make Coopers at home? The other thing, of course, uh, we had a trivia question last week, and we had somebody answer it and somebody win an Impact Mouthguards uh, prize, and we will get that out to them shortly. The question that we had was... Which U.S. state has hosted the most USAFL nationals? Well, the answer to that question is six. In 1997 in Cincinnati, 1998 in Cincinnati, 1999 in Cincinnati, 2009 in Mason, 2012 in Mason, and 2014 in Dublin. The answer, of course... person who came up with the correct response was Tristan Webster. Congratulations, Tristan. You have won something from Impact Mouthguards. We will get you in contact with them and get that prize on to you soon. We will have another trivia question, hopefully, for you next week. And our reminder, of course, to go and check out Impact Mouthguards at impactmouthguards.com, the official uh, mouthguard of the USAFL for over a decade. All right. All of that out of the way, let's get down to brass tacks with uh, our guests a little bit later on will be talking to Nick Siska, the captain of the Division II finalists from a year ago on the men's side and the Division IV winners from two years ago, and also a club that provided three players for the Women's Division II national champions from the year ago, the Baltimore Dockers. The captain of that team was the captain of the Philadelphia Hawks, Erica Saki, and we're going to talk to her now. Recently on the USFL Social, we featured Erica Saki, who is an ERRN nurse in Philadelphia. Now, this has been a very interesting last couple of months for Erica because uh, she is the captain of the Philadelphia Lady Hawks, who uh, were the champions of the Women's Division II at Nationals. That same day, she was uh, named to the emergency squad for the USA Freedom uh, for the International Cup, which was supposed to take place this summer, but is now next year. Now, instead of preparing for Australia. Erica is on the front line of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, here in Philadelphia, and she joins us to talk about her experience with that and her experience with footy. Erica, thanks for joining us on the Marks and Stripes podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Barris? I'm hanging in there. (laughs) Every day is a holiday, it seems. Um, Before we talk about uh, Aussie rules and your career and the success of the Hawks lately. Um, let's talk about uh, what's going on right now. Uh, you are, as I mentioned, an ER nurse, uh, an ERRN here in Philadelphia. What's been your perspective of this thing over the last month? Um, well, it's been really strange. It's been kind of hard to get a handle on and wrap my head around. Um, professionally, I feel like it's sort of a career-defining moment, one of those things that we're going to talk about you know, I was there when, 
um, in the future. But every day at work is a completely different experience. We, we've obviously been having our own struggles with PPE and uh, you know trying to keep our staff safe. And for the most part, I feel like we've, we've done a good job. Um, I, I do know some colleagues that have gotten sick, but luckily all of them have recovered well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's still always really concerning. We are seeing, you know, quite an uptick in the amount of people who are critically ill. Um, but we've also been seeing like a huge decrease in volume of people who are coming in for kind of more routine emergency care. So I think those two things have been balancing out. Uh, our patient population has been on the whole sicker in the department, but less volume. So it's sort of a give and take. Um, so we're just taking it kind of one day at a time. We sort of feel like the wave hasn't really hit us yet, especially looking just up the road at New York. We kind of keep thinking, like, when is the worst going to happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, so hopefully that wave never comes, but, um, you know, we're doing our best to be prepared for when it does. I know that there is a certain level of preparation for something, uh, you know, you can prepare for a situation where you're inundated, be it over a short uh, period of time or a longer period of time like this. Um, do you feel, uh, do you, have you felt prepared? Is there some aspects of this where you are taking kind of day by day? Uh, for the most part, there's, this is something that we really don't know what we're preparing for in some regards. So we're just trying to put in contingency plans for the absolute worst and take everything else in stride. Um, not to kind of brag on my own brand, but on the ER, that's that's kind of what we do best is anticipate everything that could happen and plan for the worst and go from there. So I think that's definitely what we're doing. Well, we appreciate everything that you and your team are doing as we uh, as we try to keep everybody healthy and and get through this as best we can. Um, let, let's talk about uh, Aussie Rules football now. You are the captain of the Philadelphia Haw- Hawks women's side, but uh, that's a team that... Uh, hasn't been around too long. In fact, uh, 2016 was when it was founded, and you were one of the founding members. How did you get involved with the Hawks and the sport of Australian football? So my husband studied abroad in Australia while we were in college, Um, got into footy while he was there, got into watching footy, and when he came back, he was just looking for a place to find it on TV, and he stumbled across the Philly Hawks. Uh, So started playing with the Philly Hawks in 2010, Um, And then, of course, with the rise of the AFLW and more visibility of the women's league, uh, the USAFL women's side, um, he kind of said, like, hey, there's a lot of women playing this. Do you want to come play with us? So I said, sure, and got involved and never left. Now, what's interesting is that first year was you and Amy Arendelle, who has since moved on to the New York Magpies. But now you are up to, I think, about 10 women What's been the recruiting process like uh, there in Philly? Uh, It's kind of just been friend of a friend of a friend, uh, trying to get as much word out there as we can. Um, Hopefully, once this whole thing is over, we had this whole recruitment plan for this spring, and of course, it was completely, you know, foiled by the whole COVID (laughs) pandemic, Um, but we're, we're really hoping to grow more in the, in the coming years because I, I couldn't be more proud of where we've come from. Well, w- let's talk about what's happening, I guess, now with that. What are the Hawks doing, not only on the women's side, but across the club doing uh, during this time to kind of keep their minds engaged and as well as uh, keeping prepared for the season when it does resume later in the year? Um, trying to keep uh, our physical fitness up as best we can and you know sticking together on our group chats and and on our social media to try to stay engaged with USAFL and footy players around the country Uh, unfortunately I feel like this pandemic and the resulting unemployment and and all the other struggles that everybody's going through right now are taking center stage but hopefully you know I I know our footy community is really strong and we can help each other through it. Now, this past year, we mentioned that in 2016, the Hawks had the first season, had their first season on the women's side, and you ended up being the runner-up in Division Two. The next year, uh, you teamed with Portland to win Division Two. In 2008, you were runner-up, you were runner-up again. Now, 2019 comes, and you built up this uh, fantastic group of women, including 
two that were up for a chance on the national team, one of them made it uh, as well, Leslie Gartner and Lindsay Terse. Um, talk about the development of those women, because I know there's a number of women besides them that have really built the team, but what's it been like seeing the Hawks build up into uh, ahead of last season? Um. Our, our whole team, but especially Lindsay and Leslie um, and Lauren Kelly as well, their trajectory has just been astronomical from when they first, you know, touched the footy and really fell in love with it to now has been incredible to watch. And as captain and as one of the developers of the team, it's been incredibly gratifying to, to really see their rise and to see their passion grow. So um, it's just been really, really rewarding all around. Has there been one... Uh, aspect of the game that the team and uh, I guess you and you are learning the game and whatnot. I know that uh, you have a soccer background. Has there been one aspect of the game that you find that the women, your teammates have picked up quicker than, than everything else? Um, I feel like our tenacity is really strong. Uh, we all come from different types of sports backgrounds, but I think the one thing that we have in common is we train with our men um, and we get absolutely no quarter. So we're a tough group of ladies uh, and there's, um, you know, there, there's no denying that we can take a hit for sure. I think two women that uh, on the uh, Hawks women that really uh, uh, exude that is Rose Stokely, who is a rookie and actually had played her first games at Nationals last year. And I remember her laying a, a bunch of crunching tackles and then barb dempsey who not this past year but the year before won best and fairest at the age of 47 uh, those are that really seems to uh represent the the tenacity that you're talking about yeah bulldog barb i mean if they could draft her to the eagles i think they should <laughs> um, she, she's been an absolute fixture in our back line and uh I, I can't wait to get back on the field with all of them so you go through the season, you had that big win early in the year against uh, a New York side that uh, was playing up in Division One. So now you come to Nationals, and you're paired up with the with the Arizona Lady Hawks. Now, uh, in a sense, uh, everybody, went, as soon as the draw came out, everybody went, wow, you're going to be playing alongside Danielle Marshall, who by that time had already been signed with the Western Bulldogs of the AFLW. But I, I think what a lot of people also that may not have known is that you had a pretty well-rounded team up and down the track uh, besides you and Leslie, who we mentioned, but a lot of the women on Arizona as well, plus the help from Baltimore and Boston. Yeah, I think we just kind of had a magical combination of experience and energy and fitness and just footy talent uh, in general. We all gelled really, really well together. I think a big part of our win at nationals was the overall attitude that everybody came in with. It was very open, very respectful, and we all gelled really, really quickly um, on the field and off the field, and the results, I think, spoke for themselves. I feel like that's a uh, common theme across the uh, USAFL women's community is that there is that respect there. It doesn't matter where you come from or, or where you are on the ladder in terms of uh, from the players that are always out there, I guess, for lack of a better term, the superstars and then the role players and whatnot. Everybody always seems equal. And there's always this, uh, even if you're on other teams, there's always this this wanting to grow as a competition. And I think that's what makes it great. What do you think? I absolutely agree. I also feel like there are a lot of us that come from different backgrounds, both, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, geographic backgrounds, um, workplace, professional backgrounds where we grew up. And it, it doesn't matter because when we all step on the field, we're all there for one reason. And there's this attitude, this really pervasive attitude through the whole, especially the women's side, that you kind of found your tribe. There's a, a lot of being a, a young woman, especially once you kind of lose the structure of a college athletics program, you want to find that group of people again, and you want to hang out with those people again. And so when you find them, and you find that there's a lot of them, it's really exciting, and you finally get to be with your group. And that's what, that's what Nationals is. And win or lose, that's always the case. Yeah, and I think that's what makes the development of the women's game as important, if maybe not a little bit more important than the men's game, I think, because there is that, that avenue for you to get together and, and to grow uh, 
the sport as well. Um, now, we, we talk about growing the sport. We talk about uh, that camaraderie and whatnot. You, as well as everybody else, uh, got a chance to meet Aaron Phillips, of course, the uh, dual premiership winner and probably the best player. Well, definitely the best player in AFLW. What was that experience like? So I actually, <laughs> the reason why I met her was one of my other teammates, Megan Tioto, was a little bit starstruck. I didn't even really notice that she, that Aaron Phillips was standing right there, and Megan grabbed me by the sleeve and said, hey, that's Aaron Phillips, she's right there. And <laughs> I was like, Megan, go talk to her, and she wouldn't. And so I was like, okay, all right, we're going to go talk to her. So Megan and I both went up to her, and we ended up chatting with her for probably half an hour. And I, I kind of expected her to be like, oh, yeah, cheers, here's a picture, and kind of like go to do the next thing. She was great. She was really fun to talk to and really open, which, you know, I absolutely appreciated. She's she's not only an amazing footy player, but I really look up to her as a leader and as a captain, um, both from basketball and from footy. So it was cool to kind of hear about how she balances work and life and how she and her partner kind of deal with having a family as well as being a professional athlete. Um, so it was a wonderful experience. I hope she's listening. So <laughs> hi, Erin. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tag her in this and we'll see how, we'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> let's go back really quick to the championship game a little bit, and we'll talk about the uh, overall growth of, of women's football in, on the East Coast. Not only did you win the grand final, not only did you come from behind, but you did it over uh, a bit of a, a rival in D.C. who just a couple of weeks earlier um, won pretty uh, convincingly against you guys. You know, winning is great. Winning a grand final is great. What was it like in beating the Eagles in that grand final? So, first of all, I love my D.C. Eagles girls. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, it's always a great rivalry, and I love, you know, being up against the, especially the, the midfielders that I usually play against. Hi, Lo. Um, <laughs> hi, Mac. <laughs> so, it's always a really great mashup on the field, and I think that last game came down to the absolute wire, which I wouldn't have had it any other way. Uh, I think one of the differences that put us over the top in that game versus the previous game in D.C., part of it was a numbers game. Um, the the numbers in D.C., the previous game before that, we were significantly outnumbered and exhausted. It was like 100 degrees. Mm -hmm. uh, so not making excuses, but that was definitely played into it. Um, so I think a little bit more of an even matchup in terms of numbers and, and – um, you know, fitness capacity really, really helped in that last game. But for most of the game, it was it was anybody's call. Right. Now, you met Aaron Phillips, you, you win the championship, and then right at the end there, you were announced uh, as one of the emergency selections for the International Cups uh, squad, which, as we mentioned, of course, was supposed to be uh, this August. It's been moved back a year. But, um, you know, the last couple of months, I can't, imagine because you're training uh, for this uh, opportunity that you know you might be able to get to depending on the way the roster shifts and whatnot and now all now everything's been pushed back here and uh, there's a lot of uncertainty how are you staying mentally ready for for this the possibility of playing again next year yeah March was uh, March was a rough a rough month. Um, corona kind of came in and, and bulldozed everything. So I think especially being named to the emergency squad as opposed to the the full roster had really, really lit a fire under me to be as as fit as possible, really get my skills up as, as much as possible. And then not only professionally did I get cut out at the knees by coronavirus, but now footy has sort of been taken away from me for, you know, for at least this spring and, and definitely the International Cup for this year. So it's been tough to stay on track, but I think the the Freedom Women together have really worked through that. We've really talked a lot on our social media platforms and, um, you know, Elise Gallagher has been hosting like Zoom workouts and, and we've really been holding each other accountable. So trying to kind of prop each other up during this really terrible time has has helped it's great to have that sort of community because i know there's a lot of people that are struggling with that right now that um normally are uh i guess they're struggling to have that around them because in some cases they're very isolated but this is one of those instances where you're glad that you have this this uh, support system around you to get through it 
yeah, it's um, it's never a bad thing, but I think in times like this, it's more more necessary, more needed than any other time. Absolutely. One last question before we get into the fun one. Um, I mentioned earlier about the growth of, of the game on the East Coast. I know that everybody who's been following the women's side of things has known that it's New York uh, and then a number of other cities such like Philadelphia. D.C. has been Division Two for a long time. Baltimore, Boston, uh, Columbus is trying to grow out. But at the same time, it, it's not a matter of one big team and just a bunch of little uh, sides. Uh, everybody seems to be working working together for the greater good and the greater growth uh, on the East Coast. And I know a lot of that is the obviously the driving force of the international of the of the individual clubs, but also the fact that you have Christina Lakata, who is now the head coach of the women's team up there, and she's really driving this as well. What's that dynamic been like in, in trying to grow a program like you are in Philadelphia? Um, I, I don't think I can give uh, T and Andrea Casillas from New York enough credit for really helping prop up the growth of footy on the East Coast. Uh, not only um, Jess Taylor as well has also been just like a, a rock for us uh, in the past couple of years. So just everything from advice to kind of a shoulder to cry on when things don't work out. Um, and throwing out ideas for recruiting and for working out and for the, the very unique dynamic that we have as, as a women's team in, um, in a world where post-college sports seem to be a very male-dominated thing. We're kind of taking it by storm, and it really does feel like uh, not just one team, but it feels like one team broken into several cities across the East Coast. Um, so it's it's been incredibly helpful and, and in most cases very inspiring. Yeah, and I know that those of us who are observing uh, are inspired by the growth as well, not just it, like not just in New York as you said, but all up and down the East Coast. All right, one last question, and we always like to end on a fun one. Um, I know you've been following AFLW, uh, as is just about everybody else, uh, over the last couple of years. So my question to you is, uh, who is your favorite team in AFLW, and who's your favorite player to watch? Oh, God, this one is so hard. Um, you know what? i I got to give it to my girl, Danny Marshall, and her Western <laughs> Bulldogs Bay were so scrappy all year and it was just amazing to see someone grow so much over the course of a season and just to say over and over again I know her I played with her she's great so that that's got to be my go-to awesome well Erica thank you so much for joining us on Marks and Stripes best of luck with uh, your future in Aussie rules and that of the Philadelphia Hawks and keep up the great work that you're doing uh, on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic all right. Thanks so much, Barris. Take care. We're going to take a quick break and come right back. And when we do, we'll be talking with Nick Siska of the Baltimore Dockers. You're listening to the Marks and Stripes USAFL podcast. Australian rules football in the U.S.? That's right. The United States Australian Football League is in a city near you. Go to USAFL.com. Find your team. Check them out. We're a group full of men and women just like you. Join us for the fun athletic competition. Stay for the camaraderie. We won the champion! Log on and sign up to join your team at USAFL.com. Welcome back to the Marks and Stripes USAFL podcast. Before we get to our conversation with Nick Siska, um, thought it would be interesting to share the results of a poll that we did recently on two of our social media outlets, uh, on Facebook and Instagram. Um, Channel 7 in Australia recently did a, a quick little, what do you think about this sort of thing? And um, it surrounded the names on the back of jumpers uh, in, well, for the AFL, but uh, it's a good question to ask throughout uh, footy in general, um, because I know that some USAFL teams have names on the back of their jumpers, not many, and uh, it's something that most sports have adopted, especially here in the U.S., unless, of course, you're a Yankees fan. I know a lot of college sports don't do it. I know that there are clubs uh, in different sports all throughout the world, but it seems like 
Aussie Rules fans really cling on uh, to the idea of just having the number of being kind of a classic look. Uh, with the, the AFL did actually experiment with names on the jumpers a couple of years ago, and I think a lot of people weren't terribly into it. But we ran a poll, as I said, on Facebook and on our Instagram. Uh, on Instagram, 56% of you liked having names on the back of jumpers, uh, and 59% on Facebook didn't like having the names on jumpers. So I don't know what to tell you. Um, we'd love to hear your opinions on this. Uh, you can reach out to us, again, on Twitter and Instagram at USAFL1997 and on Facebook at facebook.com slash USAFL. All right, on to Nick. One of the more hardworking teams is one of the newest in the USAFL. The Baltimore Dockers came about in at the end of the 2017 season when the Baltimore-Washington Eagles expanded into two clubs, the D.C. Eagles and, and the Dockers. The Charm City side has played 36 games in their two seasons of existence. That's 18 games a season on average, including about 20 or 21 last year. Now, they also did something pretty rare. They, were, they won the Division Four Grand Final in 2018, jumped up two divisions and made the grand final in men's division two. Uh, certainly an impressive performance. And the captain of the Baltimore Dockers is an American. His name is Nick Siska, and he joins us in the Marks and Stripes podcast. No problem. Thank you for having me. Um, let's start at the beginning. It's a great place to start. How did you get into Australian rules football? Uh, well, I've been playing for probably five years now, and when I started, I had just moved to Baltimore City, so I really didn't know anyone in the city, and um, was kind of looking for maybe, in, I guess for lack of a better term, an outlet for to meet some people. I was involved in some competitive lacrosse in, in college. I played in college lacrosse. I played college basketball as well, so when I got finished with that, I really didn't have much to go on and or play and wasn't into the social uh, kickball leagues as much as some of the other friends that, have, that I had at the time. So I was actually approached by uh, Dean Vigas in the gym while I was working out, and he kind of told me I was going to come out and play footy. And from there, it's kind of history. I went out first time and kind of fell in love with the sport and kind of saw how free-flowing it was and how you could combine different athletic traits from different sports, and it really fascinated me from the beginning. I remember one of your first games, actually. You played in the Eastern Regionals in 2016, I believe it was, in New York. And I remember being uh, very impressed by you because it was me and Bill Robert calling the match from on Stateside, on Stateside Footy. What was that? F those first matches like? Did you feel, ha having played lacrosse and having played basketball, where there's it's almost like being in a hornet's nest, did you feel right at home right away? Uh, well, the... the... I guess the thing for me was <clears throat> just trying to get get my bearings with the field. I mean, I, I was confident enough where I knew that I could maybe do some things or run away from some people, but if when it came to me trying to kick to somebody or kick to hit a target, that's what kind of made me nervous. So I didn't feel too much out of water. I mean, like a fish out of water, but I was able to kind of use some of my athletic ability. So I did kind of feel I clicked almost – right away. Those first couple games, um, it took me some time to kind of catch up to the speed or where I needed to be on the field playing a certain position, but it was a, almost a kind of a seamless kind of transition from lacrosse and even basketball traits to playing, you know, footy, at least here in the States. Now, you were a part of the beginning of the Baltimore Dockers, as I mentioned, with that expansion from the one club into the two. Talk about being a part of something. I mean, there was the base with the Baltimore-Washington club, but w what was it like to be on the ground floor of a new club with all that history? Well, it, it kind of started in, when we were our last year as the combined club, D.C. and Baltimore Eagles. So we had a set group of guys, a foundation of guys in Baltimore City, and then a core group of guys in D.C., and we were just kind of a full recruitment at that time, so we were bringing a lot of people to games and having a split club or split the club when we were standalone D.C., so you're seeing it kind of develop from there. I was kind of, I mean, within my first couple of years, it, we, we grew, and that was the help of, you know, Dean 
and Danny Seal, who was on the D.C. side. So they kind of took both cities, coached us up, and then we came together and played as a unit, played very well. So I, I kind of went to Dean, actually, and Dean and I kind of, he came to me and we were talking about, you know, it's hard to have all these guys come and, you know, no one gets a game or doesn't get a run sometimes if we're only playing one game. So we didn't want to lose the, the momentum we had built in both cities. So we, we kind of started the talk early on in that last year of, you know, having the players vote as a split. And, you know, it's it kind of – we knew it was going to happen because the, the Baltimore guys didn't want to travel to D.C. for training and vice versa. So – it was kind of it was fun to see it kind of come together, but there was some um, nerve-wracking times, I guess you could say, because there were guys on both sides of the line that you know didn't want to split. We wanted to stay together because we were such a a good club and solid club, and um, both clubs were worried about taking a step back. So you know there was some growing pains, I guess you could say, that last year as a DC club where we were trying to separate ourselves from that. But it's been a great ride, and you know. I, I couldn't have been happier with the way things turned out. We we split, and like you said, we went D4 final and ended up winning it and then, you know, jumped two divisions last year, which kind of shows how we are able to kind of coach up our core guys and even recruit well to put in pieces around them that kind of help us make that jump. Because if it wasn't for – I mean, we're not a, a club that has a lot of Australians to begin with, and we didn't have a lot when we were with D.C. either, so we rely – heavily on our Americans and being able to coach them to the point where they're comfortable and they're able to kind of lead some of our key positions and, and key groups for us. Well, that brings me to a question that I ask a lot of the teams, especially ones like yourselves that has a fair bit of American core. Baltimore as a city, it's a football town. It's a basketball town. There's a lot of colleges uh, around it. Obviously, you're from the area. What's been recruiting like and what's been a method that you and the rest of the team have found to get Americans into the game? We try to angle it as a, because social sports is really big here in, in Baltimore City, and there's, uh, it's called Bolo City, so they run a, a, a couple programs where they you can come out and pay your fee and, and play in these clubs, you know, not even club, they're just kind of social gatherings almost, and some of these guys that we've kind of saw playing this and going out, we would see them maybe out or, or, you know, at a bar or something like that. So we tried to kind of approach it as, you know, it's more of a, a group thing, a social setting for us, and then try to get them hooked that way and then bring them into the footy, maybe bring them to a training. They can kind of see, oh, wow, this is a really different sport. Not of them have never seen it before. They're And then that's kind of, they get that first little taste, that first training, and then they start to kind of come out. And we want to try to make sure that, we invite everybody and anyone, when male, female, it doesn't matter. So you know, bring them out. And you know, we would always try to specialize in trying to do something after a training or you know, bring everybody to maybe a bar or something like that, get some dinner or maybe a drink or two before everybody goes home. So try to keep everyone engaged. That was uh, the biggest thing right away that I noticed was you know people showing up one or two trainings and then falling off. So we try to make sure that it's a you know, it's a big thing and it's a big event when you come out and we want to try to, you know, build that friendship through the, the social aspect of footy. And then, you know, the uh, the way we've done, I think, pretty good the last year and a half, two years is with our social media. We've got some, one guy in particular that kind of does a great job with all of our social media and, and being able to push the word out to, you know, a lot of people in the city and we have some you know, fostered some relationships through Dean, um, you know, being here as long as he was. He was working in a couple of bars while he was here, and, you know, he was able to kind of use his training. He did some, you know, F45 stuff back in Australia, so he was over here doing some, you know, training in some gyms. So we've got friendly with certain people in the community that are able to recognize us by, you know, just posts on Facebook and seeing us around town. So that was another way for us to kind of gain traction and be able to keep the numbers up because, you know, it's, like I said, it, the the fear of mine was splitting and then not being able to have enough people to feel the team. So it's it's worked out well for us. 
you mentioned keeping everybody engaged. I mentioned at the top of this that you guys have played more games, I think, than any other USFL club in the last two years. And it's it's rare to see a team play so many dates. And just looking at last year's schedule, you guys went all the way up to Maine. You went to North Carolina. Uh, you played in uh, Columbus as well, basically all over the place the last couple of years. How important is it to get all of these games and especially team, as you mentioned, which is still finding its legs as a as an individual unit? As a leadership group, when we kind of looked at, all right, well, who do we want to play? In that first year when we you know split and we were the doctors as a standalone club, you know, we kind of looked at it as, well, let's play anyone. We will play anyone. It doesn't matter if we, you know, travel there for an away game and we just get destroyed. So we were always of the mindset more games, especially especially against tougher competition is going to make us better as a footy club. So and we looked at it the season for us kind of starts preseason. We get going around February probably, um, or late February, February, and then we try to build in games throughout the summer all the way up to nationals so that that is kind of the carrot for guys that come into training a lot. You know, we have 18 games on the schedule. If you're coming to trainings twice a week like we have, you're going to get rewarded by playing a game. Some of these games are what we call the pod system on the East Coast where we had two and three t- clubs come. We play almost like a tournament-style shortened game, so you're playing a, a bunch of footy in a Saturday, so you know we want those guys, maybe the ones that weren't getting a run in the top side, they can play in the twos or something like that. So that was something we always kind of advertised to the club right from the beginning for the split, and it's worked out well for us because guys can view it as, all right, well, I may not get a game here, but I know this two weeks there's going to be multiple, you know, chances for me to get out there and play some footy so and that's we've done that again this year I mean we had obviously before current situation with the coronavirus but we had a a lot of games scheduled some tough away games scheduled as well so we after last year we sat down and we looked at everything as a whole and you said we said we want to be heat you know this high as a club we need to start playing teams that are better than us you know when we played against the Lions last year at Nationals. It kind of, I know from some of the leaders and some of the senior guys, Australians as well, it kind of opened their eyes and be like, all right, well, because we had zero and, uh, you know, we weren't thinking anything remotely close to what we did last year. We had no ambitions of making it to the, you know, the grand final or even being coming close like that. So I think it opened everybody's eyes and I was like, oh, crap, well, Maybe we're a little bit better than what we thought, and you know things are working out for us, so we need to take that second step now. Well, that was a question I was going to ask you, is that you had won Division Four in 2018, beating Arizona, and I imagine everybody on the club is thinking, okay, we're going to play in Division Three uh, next year, we're going to try and win that, and, and maybe go from there. Then you go through a season where you had 13 wins, and when the seedings come out, you guys are in Division Two, And now you're playing with the likes of Orange County and San Diego. Philadelphia is on the other side as well, a team that you guys have played a lot. And we'll get into that in a moment. But what was the reaction when you guys saw that you, were, you weren't just moving up a level, but you were moving up two levels? Uh, well, I'm, a lot of us weren't thrilled, obviously. Um, you know, a lot of guys view Nationals as a time to – come out and try to take some hardware home, you know what I mean? So, you know, there were some senior level guys that are counting their days of footy and they probably don't have much left that were saying, all right, well, I can get some more hardware next year after we won this division four. But um, as soon as the seedings come out, you know, you know, Ian Payne was our president at the time. He did a great thing, kind of set everybody down and said, you know what, it doesn't matter. We're still going to go there. We're going to show them that they – we deserve to be there, that we deserve to play these teams and we're going to make some noise. And that was kind of how we looked at it. And, you know, we we as a club are very kind of resilient and kind of in the way that we approach things and the way that we structure our club is very open. So we we want the players to be involved, so we kind of put it to the group and said, you know, like this is what's going to happen if you guys don't want to come or you feel that you've been slighted because we're moving up two divisions, that's fine. We've got enough people to carry this club. So everybody was on board. And, I mean, they, they, were, they were only angry for, I want to say, maybe 20 minutes or so <laughs> and then moved on. So I think it was a good 
good challenge for us, good test. And like I said, it opened our eyes and kind of showed us where how good we can be. So now you're into the grand final against San Diego, and I don't know. I'm sure you guys thought that you had a chance, and I know me watching you guys play, especially in August when uh, uh, you took uh, two games from D.C. and Philadelphia at home, and I was thinking, man, these guys are maybe a little bit better than Division Three. When you got to the grand final, were you thinking, hey, we're, we're kind of playing with house money here? We've, we've exceeded expectations? Well, when we were playing to get in, to the grand final, I think that was kind of the mindset with some of our guys. Um, when we made the grand final, I we kind of pulled a couple guys aside and you know gauge everybody's temperature, and and everybody was of the feeling and the mindset that all right, well, we may have surprised some people here, but we are now ready to kind of take this over and try to win this whole thing right now. So I think. Yeah, you could. I mean, I'm sure there's still some guys and you know some people on the outside looking in that probably thought we shouldn't have been there. But um, I mean, I think at, once we got to that game or before that game, we were we were fully vested. And you know, I think we the the first day is when we surprised ourselves. I think we were winning those games the first day of nationals and especially that first game where I believe we played Portland maybe and came out on fire. So I think. After that game and that first day, we kind of knew something. We were doing something special. Or we had a chance to do something special. Now, that was a special weekend for another reason as well. Not only did you did you guys make the grand final, but you had three women come out uh, come down from Baltimore in uh, Karen Stablin, Sam Worrell, and uh, Catherine Bross, who were a part of the Division II women's championship team that won coming from behind. They were with the Philadelphia Hawks, the Arizona Hawks, and the Boston Demons. And uh, not only did they win the grand final, but they defeated a team that was made up mostly of your rivals from D.C. How much did that mean to the club, and what kind of momentum? I know a Roxy Alley, who uh, was a phenomenal player, was sidelined towards the end last season with a, with an injury, has taken over as the coordinator of the women's side this year. But how much did that result last year give you guys momentum in terms of building up the women's side this year? Well, we always... That's always been a kind of a goal of ours is trying to you know push prop up the women's side and help them out as best we can. We, I mean, it's obviously we struggle, I guess, as a club as a whole with some of what we we're trying to do with the women's side, and you know we our numbers are just aren't there like other clubs around the country, and we're working on that and building on that. And Roxy's doing a great job as the women's coordinator this year, and you're right, she did have a great year. I believe she won. MVP at regionals. Yes, she did. I'm not mistaken. Yep. Yeah. So, and what we and we try to do the same thing. So you know, we bring if it, if some if a woman is in, interested in come out and playing footy, we have them practice with us on the men's side, uh, same times. And if they're newer to the game, we'll have one of our senior guys take them off and kind of show them the ropes. If Roxy's not there or Karen's not there, so we we try to incorporate everybody. And I was thrilled when I saw you know the. The ladies win that D four grand, you know, grand final with Sam, Karen, and and Cat all being on the side. And you know, I, I think that the women's side is, like I said, it's been a struggle for us. But I'm glad that um, you know some of our surrounding cities, some of the women's clubs are so accommodating to have or let our you know Dockers women play with them or try to get a game with them. I, that that really helps the process. And you know, because we can't. It's hard for us to schedule games sometimes. You know, we, we have conference calls with some of the clubs on the East Coast, and we try to build it around a women's game and a men's game on the same day, and we just kind of, Baltimore in particular, gets kind of put in a bind because we can't field a full team. So we're trying to work with other clubs, and you know, they're always willing to accommodate our, our ladies to come up and get a run. So I, I get it's a work in progress, and it's kind of been a challenge that we, we're still trying to work it out. and. I mean, I couldn't have been more happier than them kind of playing up and, and doing well and winning the, the flag for with Philadelphia. You mentioned the other teams in the East Coast. Um, of course, you're very close to D.C., uh, both uh, uh, literally and metaphorically, uh, but mm -hmm. also you're right down I-95 from the Philadelphia Hawks. You've got the New York Magpies nearby. You're in an 
a unique geographical situation with respect to the USAFL because around the country, a lot of teams don't have that. Um, what's the dynamic of having all these teams so close to you, but represent completely different metropolitan areas? Well, I think it's good for footy in the U.S. and especially on the East Coast to show kind of rest of the country that we've got some strong clubs out here. Um, New York obviously has always been at the top and or at the top every year that I've been playing. And, you know, Philadelphia has, even while in my short term being a, a Eagle and a Docker, they've always been at the top as well. So we are, as Dockers, just trying to strive to get to those clubs level and you know I think DC and and Baltimore you know we're trying to kind of you're, you're playing catch up a little bit after the split but I think we're right there and I mean it just goes to show you like we're all good friends and but we love to compete against each other so we love to play Philadelphia we love to go up and play New York I hope the feeling is mutual and you know some of our hardest games and toughest games and you know some of the some fights break out or when we play DC it's just because we know each other so well where some of us are still friends others are not friends anymore <laughs> so it's it's a good good way and a good barometer at least for us in the east to kind of set ourselves on where we need to be when it relates to playing the rest of the country and I think it just kind of like I said it goes to show we play each other so that level of competition is going to elevate each club on the east coast for when we go to regionals or have those big tournaments like nationals so obviously the um, the season isn't on pause at the moment everything is uh, up in the air but what are the dockers doing right now to just kind of uh, stay active and stay uh, engaged while we wait for the season to resume well, we've got some new leadership this year. So uh, Tom Waters took over as coach, and then we've got a like a strength and conditioning coach, I guess you could call him. His name's Balan Calf, and we've been trying to work out uh, like workout programs, and we've sent it all to the playing groups. We have the guys and the ladies do uh, their runs and their workouts, and then we have them just dump them, dump pictures into the folder with their times or what they did. And we've been trying to use that as to kind of some social media content to drive, you know, awareness of our club and get the name out there while people are, you know, at home on their phones, maybe on Facebook or Instagram. And then we've been trying to kind of hold uh, weekly meetings. Tom will go over some game plan type stuff because we really haven't, I mean, we had our a, a brief preseason and then, um, you know, whenever, when all this hit, we were kind of right in the middle of it. So we kind of had the hit the brakes pretty hard. So a lot of guys we had recruited and brought in, had no idea about the game and they were just learning it, just picking it up and starting to really get involved. And now we kind of, they're kind of hitting a brick wall. So we're trying to do some like weekly zoom calls to kind of show some tactics on what we want to do if we do get a game in and, and the season resumes. And then you know, we've got guys that, you know, like I said, show, showing the pictures of their workouts and we try to post those and try to, you know, stay relevant that way. And um, like I said, I mean, Johnny, does a great job with our social media and posting and, and getting everything organized for us, which I mean, he's, he's a whiz at it. So <laughs> I know he's uh, drawn the envy of a lot of us uh, <laughs> who do the yeah. social media around the league. He's just so good. He really is. Yeah. He really is. He, he does a great job for us and knows exactly what, what we need to be putting out there. So gain some traction. So Yeah. It's helpful when you have somebody like that. All right, last question. I always like to ask a fun question for everybody, and uh, uh, here's yours. We'll talk about the uh, the AFL, the professional league. I know everybody uh, who plays this game follows it in some respect. Who is your team in the AFL, and who's your favorite player? So I am a, uh, a Doggies fan. So when I started playing and – which I guess it was the grand final that they won. We were, I was with Dean and we were in Austin for his bachelor party. I just happened to be watching that grand final at the bar and my favorite player is Marcus Bonsantelli. So I just try to model how I play footy after the way he moves about the ground and how he is able to kind of not look like he's running very fast and be able very smooth through traffic. And so my favorite player was is Marcus Bontempelli, and you know I'm a, a doggies fan, so I I root for them pretty hard, and all the boys were giving me a hard time 
not last year, the year before. Jack's a Collingwood fan, so he likes to you know, give it to everybody. But <laughs> Of course, you're talking about uh, Jack's Super Nintendo Chalmers. <laughs> I am, yes, yes. He's a hardcore Collingwood fan, so you got to hear about it every time we come to training. But not a Simpsons fan, because I have to explain that joke every time I say it. <laughs> yes, no. Doesn't watch much Simpsons. <laughs> well, you know, you can't go wrong with the Bont. He is a really good yeah. player. But uh, And I'll tell you what, um, you do look like the Bont out there at times. Uh, you are, <laughs> you, you you know, you're modeling yourself after him, and, and it seems to be working. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. No worries, mate. Nick Siska, the captain of the Baltimore Dockers, good luck to you and good luck to the Dock Show in 2020. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Had a good time. As we sign off on this episode uh, with Anzac Day coming up on April 25th, which will be right around the time you are listening to this, uh, we just want to take a moment and thank everybody who has served or is currently serving uh, to help protect us uh, on a larger scale. Uh, of course, this is an Anzac Day unlike any other uh, with the COVID-19 uh, situation right now. And we do know that normally uh, there are all of these sorts of commemorations. And I know a lot of commemorations are still taking place. Uh, there will be a couple in the USA online, so you can check that out on our social media. But again, our thanks to uh, those of you in Australia as part of the Australian Armed Forces, as part of our armed forces here in the States, uh, and anywhere around the world that help defend the people uh, of this great blue dot, uh, in a sense. Uh, yes, thank you so much for all of your service. Uh, in addition to those thanks, we want to also thank uh, Erica Saki and Nick Siska for joining us this week. Uh, two great people and a couple of uh, really great conversations with them about not only uh, building the game of Aussie Rules football, but about the work that, uh, that they're doing in their community. If you are listening and um, are, are interested in being involved with a team near you uh, in the USA, you can go on to our website, uh, usafl.com slash club list will tell you if there is a team near you uh, or if there isn't uh, how to start your own team. Uh, I know things are a little bit weird right now, but uh, you never know if there's anybody near you who likes Australian football and might be interested in uh, banding together to form a club uh, as we work towards the uh, I guess the resumption of life and the resumption of football, uh, not only here in the USA, but around the world. So go ahead and check that out. And of course, you can keep in touch with us, as we mentioned a couple of times, but we'll mention again, uh, facebook.com slash USAFL and Twitter and Instagram at USAFL1997. And if you're interested, I don't know why, but if you're interested in following me on Twitter, it's at Barish USAFL. And of course, if you have a question for me that you'd like to have answered on the show, uh, you can use that. The hashtag Ask Barish. That's A S K B A R R I S H. That'll do it for this week. Thank you for keeping us company for the last 53 minutes. My name is Brian Barish. Be safe, be well, and I'll talk at you next time.